Do you remember as a kid when you would behave a certain way, whether that would be grumbling after you received instruction or cheating while playing a game, yelling while guests were over, or taking your sister's toy from her? And your parents would say, don't do that, or don't act like that. Uh, Maybe the tone varied. But in a sense, this is the same simple exhortation we hear from the Apostle Paul this morning. Don't live like that. Or maybe more specifically, don't live as you once lived. And as kids, we would inevitably ask back to such commands. Why? It's a good question. It's a question that we should continue to ask. Do you remember some of the answers your parents would give you? I trust that many were wise responses made by your parents. But one of the, one of the famous ones is, because I said so. Certainly, parents have authority over their children, and this is right and good. But in addition to this response, might there be other helpful words to share regarding their behavior that begin to instill right thinking in our children, and consequently right believing? Paul Tripp, in his book, Parenting, says this. The second paragraph from Deuteronomy chapter 6 helps us here, and I would encourage everyone to read that chapter in its entirety at some point today. It tells us that we should root all the rules and beliefs that we give our children, not only in the existence of God, but in the things that he has in grace done for us. You could say that the advice here is to connect everything you require of your children in behavior and belief to the story of redemption. When your child questions the rules, don't puff up your chest and tell him he better obey or else. Talk to him about a loving Redeemer who not only created him but shed his blood for him that he could know and do what is right. When she is struggling with what God says is right, don't talk of God as just a judge, but as a helper and a friend who meets us in our weakness with forgiveness and wisdom and strength. Blow your child away with God's patience and mercy and love. Talk again and again about how he willingly exercises his power for our help, benefit, and rescue. Go beyond enforcing your authority and point to his authority. And go beyond pointing to his authority by pointing your children to his grace. Certainly, this is an encouragement, I hope, to parents today, but this is something that we all need to hear and be reminded of. In our passage this morning, Paul does cite his authority when giving a command to his hearers, authority given to him by God. But Paul doesn't just end there. Paul goes beyond simply enforcing his authority and he points the believers in Ephesus and us today to God's grace. He grounds his exhortation in the grace of God, the truth of what God has already done on your behalf. And through this, we see as well the importance of not just the behavior of a Christian, 
but the thought life of a Christian. Paul makes a big deal about knowing truth. Why is this? Simply, when we believe, what we believe shapes how we live. When we come to know the truth from the person of truth, we come to comprehend that God's grace has the power to deeply, genuinely, radically transform every aspect of our lives. Last week in Ephesians, as Paul Burr preached, we heard how the gospel builds unity. This week, we have a wonderful passage on ethics and purity and Christian living which will continue on in the weeks ahead. So as we approach the text, here is the outline and the main point of the Apostle Paul for us this morning. Do not walk as the Gentiles do, or do not live as you once lived. For you learned Christ. Therefore, walk in Christ. Put in other words, you live into who you already are as new creation by continually hearing and believing the gospel of Christ. And so it becomes clear again while reading through Ephesians, our need for what we've been calling gospel reverberation, gospel proclamation, echoing and extending. Let us turn to the text. And with this outline of three Main sections, points in our passage. Point one, understanding Paul's exhortation to not walk as the Gentiles do. Verses 17 through 19. Point two, what it means to learn Christ. Verses 20 through 24. Point three, examining the exhortations to walk as new humanity in Christ. Through verse 32. We'll spend much of our time on the middle proposition. For you learned Christ. Point one. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We have an emphatic exhortation given here by the Apostle Paul. He is speaking here most directly to pagan Gentiles who had been converted to Christianity in Ephesus. Given how Paul has previously used Gentiles as well in this letter, that the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles, believing Gentiles, are included in the one body alongside believing Jews. That they are co-heirs in Christ, as the last chapter declared. So the use of Gentiles here is, is particular. It becomes clear that it's distinct in that it's identifying these hearers from their past ways of living in their pagan Gentile communities. We're given further insight into the former state of these Gentiles who, are, who have come to know the Lord. And indeed, this is a description of all of us before knowing Christ. The report is bleak, and much of it centers around a willing ignorance of truth. At the end of verse 17, we see that these Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. Commentators note that this word often 
denoted the futility of idol worship, as well as the emptiness of human endeavors which sought to bring lasting satisfaction. But notice, it's a demerit of the mind. Likewise, these gentle Gentiles, it said, are darkened in their understanding. The power goes out at your house. You find yourself in complete darkness. How do you orient yourself without a source of light? But now here we get to the heart of the matter. In the middle of verse 18, Paul states a summation of their condition. The defining factor. They are alienated from the life of God. This is their true problem and greatest need. A couple observations here. The next two phrases are grounds for Paul's argument and explanation. These Gentiles are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they ignorant? Their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. Peter O'Brien helps to give understanding here. He says, as if to underscore the point, Paul adds that their delusion is due to hardness of heart. So the Gentiles' culpable ignorance arose out of their obstinate rejection of God's truth. The term rendering hardening in the New Testament is consistently referred to as stubbornness. And here it signifies that pagan immorality is willful and culpable. And the result of their deliberate refusal of the moral light available to them on their own thought and conscience. And an obstinate rejection of the truth of God is the beginning of the terrible downward path to evil. So their ultimate reality is due to their inner reality, which manifests itself in how they walk, in their life, in their conduct. Paul goes on to point out, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. The use of the word translated as sensuality here means a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that that violates all bounds of what it is socially acceptable. Self-abandonment. To give oneself over to licentiousness. To press the point further. To walk as the Gentiles do in context here means to be greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. In essence, this describes a state of moral corruption. So once again, Paul's emphatic exhortation. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is saying once, that once this was true, once this was true, the Ephesian Christians, but it is no longer true. This is who they were, where they were, but no longer walk accordingly. Let's be be quick to feel pride over these Gentiles, over non-believing friends. 
as Paul has already addressed in his writing, and as we have heard preached in past weeks, there is no room to be proud as we stand together at the foot of the cross. For we were all far from God, alienated from the life of God, walking in such manners, dead in sin. But God, because of his love for us, made us alive in Christ. It's helpful to see then this exhortation, not in isolation, but as the continuation back from verses 1 through 3 at the beginning of this chapter. That we are to walk, now we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And consequently, then, you do not walk in our former manner. You've heard Paul invoke his authority, testifying in the Lord, pointing to the Lord's authority, and giving an exhortation. Now we'll hear Paul point even further to the grace of God. Point two. For you learned Christ. Verse 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus There's such a richness to these verses and much to see. If nothing else this morning, may here we be convicted and reminded that what it means to be a Christian is not to understand, comprehend, believe in merely abstract ideas or philosophies or rules. What it means to be a Christian is to know a person. Our faith is based on a person. Not only that, but this person, Jesus, he is the embodiment of truth. As Paul says, the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the location of truth. Truth is personal. And so to be a Christian is to have a relationship with the one who is true. The risen Jesus who now reigns and will return. Our translation here says Paul assumes that they have heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in him. Though it's important to not miss the rhetorical force that Paul knew these converted Gentiles have heard about Christ and were taught in the way of Christ. So this begins then to answer the question, what is the way to learn Christ? What also becomes immediately apparent is a consequence that we are not to walk in our former ways because we have learned Christ. So because you have learned Christ, you no longer are darkened in understanding. Your mind is not defined by futility. Your hearts are no longer stubborn to the truth of God. So why would you live that way anymore? Don't live into the old humanity. Your old way of living, indeed, 
if you have truly learned Christ, then you cannot go on to continue to live your life as if nothing has changed. No, knowing Christ changes everything, all of life. Paul here, carried along by the Spirit, makes a clean-cut, distinct contrast then between those alienated from the life of God because of ignorance, which is a result of hardness of heart, and those who have learned Christ. So how do we understand what it means to learn Christ? Let's use the surrounding context to fill out this phrase. If you remember, the way Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians in the first three chapters is filled with truths about what God has done for us in Christ. Gospel indicatives. Truth statements. We've heard Christ in those chapters. And we were taught in Christ in those chapters. Let's draw then one example. Given what we just heard about the mark of these Gentiles, is that they are alienated from the life of God. Now hear these verses, 17 and 18 from chapter 2. He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, learning Christ means learning the glorious truths that through Christ we have access to the Heavenly Father by the Spirit. You're no longer alienated from the life of God, but freely welcomed into the life of the triune God. Notice, too, in that verse that Christ, Christ is the one doing the preaching. So learning Christ is hearing about Christ, but it is also hearing from Christ. Christ is both the content of the message and the messenger. I would encourage you, if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to Jeremy's sermons on the first chapters of Ephesians. The gospel is proclaimed as Christ is taught. We learn Christ in those chapters. But let us now focus into the more immediate context back in chapter 4. What is the way we learn Christ? Paul expounds on this phrase with three points in the following verses, verse 22 through 24. First, in learning Christ, we learn to put off our old self. Now Paul's beginning exhortation becomes self-apparent. Put off the old self because it is contrary, contradictory, opposite to who you are now in Christ. How could we any longer live as we once formerly did? So put off the old self. It's just the first and necessary thing we learn to do here. As a pastoral remark, the enemy, Satan, the adversary, does not want you to believe this. He longs for you to be deceived into thinking that the old self is still truly who you are, that you are alienated from God, 
Why wouldn't you be? You, you sin constantly. Or he loves to deceive by minimizing sin. It's okay to indulge yourself in these pleasures every once in a while, isn't it? It doesn't harm anyone. Maybe less subtly at times, we hear Satan's voice say, you don't need God. Does God even love you? Love this world and all that it has to offer instead. Our minds and our hearts are contested battlegrounds. And our next point speaks directly to this. Listen. Secondly, in learning Christ, we learn to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Again, Paul speaks the importance of the life of the mind, of knowledge, of truth for the Christian. We are called to renew our minds, to know truth, which combats the lies that we are led to believe. John Stott says this, If heaven degradation is due to the futility of their minds, then Christian righteousness depends on the constant renewing of our minds. As with all of these ways we learn Christ, they are continual. We are to constantly be renewing our minds by the truth of God and the gospel. We can hear echoes from Paul's letter to the Romans here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To be transformed to be made new and to renew your mind, go hand in hand. Stott goes on to say this. Hear this. It is our new creation which has given us a new mind. And it is our new mind which understands our new creation and its implications. Which leads us to number three. Thirdly. In learning Christ, we learn to put on the new self. Do you remember Paul, Tripp's quote on parenting? He made a comment about grounding what you tell your children regarding how they are to act and think in the story of redemption. The idea of the new self here isn't just some sentimental, nice thought. No, it is defined in redemptive history. The new self is a true reality. And what you believe about the gospel informs how you understand this new self. In his gospel-rich chapter on the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection, in a way, defines our new self. And Christ is the first fruits of new creation breaking forth. Just as he was raised to new life, so too are we. Dane Ortland wonderfully encapsulates this sense of new self in light of redemptive history. He succinctly states this reality, cosmic in scope, 
in the form of a paragraph. He says, if you are a Christian, assuming you have heard about Christ and were taught in Christ, then you have been swept up by divine grace into the new order that the prophets foretold. The new creation has already begun to dawn. If it doesn't feel like it, because the old fallen age continues steamrolling right alongside the dawning of the new age, we, we remain fallen sinners. But our basic identity, our fundamental location is in the new age, in Christ. Christ plunged through death and out the other side in the dawning of new creation. And to be in him means that he pulls you with him. To render 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 woodenly, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. In the Greek text, there is no verb there. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, you have been swept up into Eden 2.0, the new creation that silently erupted when Christ walked out of the tomb. Portland continues, As you consider your own messy little life, therefore, consider who you are. Consider whose you are. Consider that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that you too will be raised physically one day. Consider that you have already been raised spiritually. For when you sin, you behave out of accordance with who you are, not who you are. You're acting like a former orphan who's been adopted, yet keeps running out of his new house to the curb to beg for bread when the kitchen is fully stocked and his freely. You are destined for glory. This, this is our story of redemption. So we are not simply just to take off the old self, we're called to put on the new self. Built into these verses is an illustration that we can remind ourselves with continually. Consider the imagery of clothing. Every time you change your clothing, daily, a couple of days, once a week, if you wait longer, the illustration works better. But the sense of changing clothes, we put off our old, dirty, grimy, stained clothes. And we put on our new, fresh, nice-smelling clothing. In this ritual, it is a continual reminder for us to put off and to put on ourselves. We put off our old selves. Because our old selves were crucified with Christ. And we put on our new selves. Get this, though. Th th this is no small insignificant point. Now, the new self, as we read in verse 24, says, It is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God weaves the fabric of our new clothing, not us. For this is the only way that we could ever be identified with true righteousness holiness. To be identified with the one who is righteous and holy. He is the one who makes us new. And yet, still we are called ourselves to put on our new self. 
There's a tension between God's role here and our role of putting off and putting on. God is the one who makes us new. And in his letter to the Colossians, Paul then in a parallel passage has this to say. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our Creator. We are commanded to put off and to put on, and yet we are told that we already have put off and put on. It is already true of us in Christ. The commands are always, as we read in Paul's letters, Rooted in the indicatives of what God has already done for us. God's grace. So then if we are called to put off and to put on, as we have learned from Christ, how do we then live it out? By repenting and believing the gospel. Stott beautifully summarizes. In a word... Recreation, what God does, and repentance, what we do by grace. They belong together and cannot be separated. So what God does, recreation, what we do, repentance by grace, they belong together and cannot be separated. Now, as those who have been recreated by God... We are to put on the new creation then, and now we see its implications. Point three, therefore walk in Christ. Having been reminded of who we already are in Christ, if indeed we have learned Christ, here are some ethical imperatives. Now a caution is helpful here. There are two extremes that we can fall into while reading this list. The pitfall of disobedient passivity. To learn Christ is to learn Christ as Lord as well as Savior. And to take Him at His word and to obey. The second pitfall while reading this list we can fall into is the futile pursuit of moralistic snobbery. It is not simply do better or look at how much better I am at these things than them. Rather, this morning may God grant us to hear these commands with ears of faith. Put another way, since the rest of our passage this morning consists of commands that we should see as gospel entanglements or implications, this section shows what it looks like when we believe the gospel. This is a very practical passage now. And in many ways, it gives us a picture of what it looks like to live out our mission statement of rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus. So we'll read these verses together at a quicker pace. Verse 25. Therefore, so textually, 
we know these are entanglements of what has come before. Therefore, Paul speaks similarly that we are to put away falsehood. Just as we are to put off the old self. So putting off the old self includes putting off the old behaviors. And we will see with these commands that there also is a corresponding positive command to each negative. A put off and put on rhythm made possible by Christ. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And here Paul gives another grounding. For, for we are members of one body. For those who were with us last week, think back to when Paul Burr preached on the unity of the body. There is one body of Christ. So we can see that this and the rest then of the exhortations here speak directly to personal relationships that are within the one body of Christ. And yet certainly these apply to other relationships as well. For this one, for instance, consider your place of work. What a witness it would be if Christians were fully and continually honest at work. Speaking the truth, even in every single email. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. First, we note here that we can be angry without sinning. Secondly, Paul gives us three qualifiers for our anger. One, do not sin in your anger. Two, do not let the sun go down on your anger, which is to say do not let your anger sit and fester, but deal with it promptly, seeking reconciliation in a timely manner. And three, do not by any means let anger become an opportunity for the devil to exploit. For it is easy for him to do so. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's no surprise that we should come across in a list like this and be expected to not steal. But look at what we are called to do Instead, do honest work. Work hard. Do good work. Do it. For what reason? For this. So that we might have things to share with those who are in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. May when we speak, give grace to those who hear. May we echo the gospel to one continually, no matter the context. Verse 30. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As Paul has previously made clear in Ephesians and will continue to do so, our new selves in Christ, they're sealed in the Spirit. We can be assured of who we are in Him because of the Spirit. And all of our living as Christians is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, which dwells within every Christian. And as we'll hear next week, we are called to continually be filled with the Spirit of God. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. As with everything on the list, when we believe the gospel of Jesus, we will put away malice and bitterness. And when we believe the gospel, we will be kind and tenderhearted. Finally, verse ending in 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What a fitting way for Paul to end this passage. Here's our basis for everything that had come before. No longer are we alienated from God, such as those who walk like the Gentiles. But our deepest need is met in Christ, for in Him we have forgiveness and reconciliation. So then, forgive one another, because... God in Christ forgave you. The command is rooted in the grace of God. Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his appearance, his ascension into heaven, his current intercession and future return is the paradigm and the grounds and the power for our present day living. For just a moment, imagine that in our text this morning, we lost the middle section. And we went straight from do not live like this to live like this. That's so often how we operate and what we're taught. But we are fully dependent on the glorious gospel indicatives, the truth of God's grace, knowing what God has done for us, knowing God's grace is, yes, a gift of unmerited favor, but it is also power, a power for a transformed new way of living. Without the gospel, we will fall into simply a performance-based living. Rather than experience a changed heart, from within, which leads to a transformed life without. This is why gospel reverberation is so crucial for our community. We need to remind one another of the gospel and the grace of God in order to build our body up in love, to reach maturity in Christ. 
when we put off the old self and put on our new humanity in Christ, we are radically transformed and distinctly different than the world around us. Our beliefs, relationships, ethics, living are all different. So let us begin then to conclude this way. Do we as individuals, yes, but also as a church, look like new creation? What does it look like for GLC to live as the united body of Christ, set apart from the surrounding neighborhoods? Do we look different? Do we look distinct? Are we light in darkness? Are we known for our love? Do we appear as radically, ethically atypical? Here, sh here we should ask then the, the Spirit to help us in how to apply this to our own lives in time, in the here and now. Might I suggest one consideration to prayerfully pour over? How do we put off our old selves, our old morality, that of the world around us, particularly, uniquely, in this month that has become to known as Pride Month? Have we put off the old self? Have we put on our new self, our new moral fabric created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness? What are we choosing to believe this month? Do we need the approval of man? If so, what, what are we not believing about the gospel? Or do we take God at his very word, including what he has to say regarding sexual ethics. If we do, to be sure we will look and live radically different. Do we live radically different than from this old age? Or do we blend in with the world, darkened in understanding, given to sensuality, greedy for impure practices. This old age is passing away along with all of its practices. There may be some here this morning who have yet to learn Christ. To you, hear this invitation. The invitation, the exhortation is not simply to stop doing or do more good. Such is a path that leads to futility. The invitation this morning is actually no less than come and put your old self to death. For when you lose yourself, paradoxically, you will find yourself. For Christ, the Son of God, came to die for you so that you would no longer be alienated from God. Because of sin. Consider these things. The historic events. The person 
of Jesus. So then the invitation this morning is to believe, not in a system of ideas, philosophies, rules, but in a person, the Lord Jesus. And you don't, you don't need to have it all figured out. Seek him, ask him, and you'll find he is kind and tender-hearted to all, but especially to those who have doubts. To those here this morning who have learned Christ, continue to learn Christ. This text this morning is so full of glorious truth, as is each text we hear preached. Continue throughout the week to keep looking at the text. Keep learning Christ. Keep hearing more about Him and deepen your belief and your trust in Him. To live the new life, to live into ourselves as new creations, we do not look to ourselves, but we must look to Christ and behold His beauty and glory and love and mercy. Each and every week we gather at Gospel Life Church, we come to learn Christ. We're forgetful creatures, so we need to constantly be learning, reminding ourselves, growing in the knowledge and delight of Christ. And in learning Christ, we learn that we are also found to be in Christ's one body. We are made new. And we tangibly express this and enrich our faith in Christ weekly at the Lord's table. So let us approach the table now. This is a meal for believers. And so I invite you now to come and to take the elements.